Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So now, without further ado, here to read from her newest novel, Reconsolidation, uh, or it's the ghost who will answer you, Janice Lee. But first, Will Alexander. Thanks. Uh, thank you, and it's great to have this great crowd out for Janice. Nice and compact, like her writing. Uh, we met... Oh, by ch- I wouldn't say by chance, because nothing's by chance, but we met at Red Cat some years ago, and I didn't know who Janice was. And after she finished reading, I wanted to know who Janice Lee was, because it's, it's quite powerful. I had never expected that, you know, this level of consciousness just coming out of nowhere. We've been working, uh, you know, uh, together just naturally like a subterranean stream continuously over the years it's been about uh, it's about five years now time goes by but we have been working on that level of consciousness and we meet periodically to discuss consciousness about how it manifests through language which is a very difficult thing because it's not this or it's not that but it is a level of reality that comes through in the words that's invisible. And Rene DeMal called it rasa, that part that can't be uh, touched or uh, physically brought into perspective. It, it's like an Eastern, the old idea of Eastern, but uh, uh, I'd say traditional understanding of language where there was no blockage between the physical and the metaphysical. There's this oneness going through. And this is the problem with the modern world. There is this continuous bifurcation of a one zone versus another, this versus a that, and uh, we never get out of the dialectic. And so there's this, this entrapment of consciousness, which I find that Janice has found a way to work through. And this is where we have met at and continue to um, work with. And I was uh, having this thought the other day about um, the new consciousness of uh, the, um, how can I put it, the, the rich cognoscenti, the people who have money, they want to teach their children Chinese because they figure it's the next new thing on the level of matter. But if you really look at it, you have to really look at the situation. The real movement is Afro-Indian, which is Southern Global English, which has all these particles of interior technology, pregnant with interior technology. This is the problem that the human race is working with. They're working with things like Fukushima instead of with themselves, looking at phones instead of with what we have inside of us. We're like volcanoes and rivers. As Arto says, we're, we're full of all the natural forces of life, and we don't look at ourselves. We look at something outside of ourselves. So this is the level that Janice has been, continues to maintain, continues to proliferate. I'm happy to do this because the Karotakis, daughter, damnation, they just continue to go. 
this reconsolidation, right? It's another, and it's coming, and it's coming. We've been, and we do these, uh, we're doing this diary, you know, this email diary, and it just naturally flows. Oh, the transparent is witness. We collaborated on that book, and that was so smooth. No hitches. And so this is the way we want to keep this reading tonight. No hitches. I don't want to go too far. Janice approved the fact that I will read a one poem of my own. And it's called The Impalpable Brush Fire Singer. It was written some years ago. He says, no, he is not an earned singer, nor does he carry on rapport with negative forces within extinction. He is the brush fire singer who projects from his heart the sound of insidious subduction, of blank anomaly as posture, of opaque density as ash. He, distanced from prone ventriloquial stammer, from flesh and habit and drought, the performer part poltergeist and orisha, part broken in cellular dove, part glance from floating Mongol bastions, where the spires are butane, where the photographic fractals are implanted with hypnosis. Because he allegedly embodies a green necrotic umber, more like a vertical flash or firad, posing like a tempest in a human chromium palace. Therefore, his sound, a dazed simum in a gauntlet, a blizzard of birds burned at the touch of all maelstroms. He, because he gives off the odor of storms, this universal orisha, like a sun that falls from a compost of dimness, out of deep productive hydrogen sums, out of lightless fissures which boil outside the planet. Yes, he sings at a certain pitch which has evolved beyond the potter's field, beyond a tragic hummingbird's cirrhosis, surmounting primeval flaw, surmounting fire which forms an irreplaceable disjunction. Under certain formations of the zodiac, he is listless. He intones without impact, his synodic revelations no longer of the law of measured palpable destinations because he sings in such a silence that even the rishis can't ignore. As though the hollow power which rearises from nothingness perpetually convinces like a vacuum which splits within the spinning arc of an intangible solar candle. Such power can never be confusedly retraced because it adumbrates and blazes like a glossary of suns so that each viral drill, each forge casts a feeling which insaturates a pressure bringing to distance a hidden and elated polarity. Like a subjective skill corroded and advanced, he sings beyond the grip of a paralytic nexus where blood shifts, beyond the magnet of volume where the nerves no longer resonate inside an octagonal maze stung at its source by piranhas. On that note, we're going to hear the the stinging and the uh, oracular witness of Janice Lee. Okay. Um, thank you, Will, for that introduction. Um, it's quite humbling, actually. Um, injustice. Um, I was telling um, I was telling Harold actually earlier before the reading. It's like the first time I've been nervous in a while. Um, I usually think of myself as a fiction writer, so this is actually my first nonfiction book. Um, and then this is 
also, it's something I wrote five years ago, so it's have a very strange distance um, from it. Um, so before I read from the book, I'm just actually going to read um, a few uh, excerpts from um, an essay that I just wrote recently, um, sort of reflecting on, on the book. Um, it was recently the five-year anniversary of my mother's death, which is what this book is about. Um, so I'm going to start with that. The entire world forms along a wound, and the deeper the wound, the more intimate the relationship. Loss as a chasm that can't be closed, rendered through an inarticulatable restlessness that persists and severs a person's trajectory. The hardest part about losing someone is that marked feel of their absence. It creeps up genuinely and creates a peritatic, peritatic assault. Symptoms include peculiar changes in behavior, revelations that ruin rather than inspire, schemes that disappear, and dietary changes. While she is alive, even if you are out of touch, even if you haven't spoken to her in months, you know that she is there. And the knowledge of that existence is enough to keep you complacent. In the knowing of her aliveness, the knowing of her presence, whether or not you are sitting there with her, she is there. But when she is gone, you realize suddenly and violently that she is gone. Suddenly you have memories, memories that didn't exist before because there was no reason to remember. And you try to remember those memories because you know that you won't ever be able to see her again, yet because these memories are created through a death, carefully cut holes that offer glimpses, the previous complacency becomes condemnation, becomes denial, becomes a forced extraction. The memories become more difficult to reach, more elusive. You want to reach out and beckon for the ghost because you need her to affirm that your memory is still accurate and reliable, but she is reluctant. Beyond the givenness of anything, she hides from revelation, or you are unable to decipher it. The conjuration is a false and hopeless one, reliant on old photographs and ashes. She lives and dies, lives and dies all over again in every speculation of context, every reconstruction. The blurred image is tattered, torn apart by reckless pulling, and a memory born of a wound is a wound in itself. You realize that she doesn't ex exist anywhere in the world, not in any tangible form. You realize now that she exists only in your memory, and that is a terrifying thought. It shakes you, bitter and nauseous, and you fall to the floor choking, gagging, laughing madly, tears streaming down your cheeks. You ask yourself from a safe distance, how can you rely on the fact that somebody who was so important now lives on in the most unreliable parts of yourself? It's only the general feeling that lingers, and this feels like a fucking cop-out. Memory loss isn't simple or gradual like a body of water moving through a canyon. It's more like a series of catatonic attacks, dreaded feelings that are so visceral, I feel like I'm tumbling down a flight of stairs, landing in a spotlight of dust. Then, a new scarring from indelible impressions that are murky, resurrected with little or no evidence. In the end, it's as if the phrase, I remember, is a performance. A performance of remembering that indicates remembering, but remembering is so different now. The sun is setting and I watch the light that pushes through between the trees. The dogs are sitting on the dirt, holding their paws up expectantly. Darkness creeps in quickly above the orange haze, layers of colors embedded into the dimming fabric of the sky, darkening and skinning and flat and wary. The darkness starts off blurry, then crisp edges in the periphery, then murky black and deep blue. Here, the wound revealed by the setting sun is not so different from the others. What I remember is a face. So 
So I'll read um, from Reconsolidation. Um, and this, like I mentioned, was written five years ago. It was written immediately after my mother's um, sudden death. Um, and it's a series of sort of fragments um, and uh, yeah, so it's a series of fragments. Um, and thank you so much to Rebecca who uh, wanted to publish this. Memories consolidated and reconsolidated so many times, I don't remember the faces of my mother anymore. I can see a face, but the emotional state I'm in, it could really be any face. Every face looks like her face. Only dream glimpses allow me to see her, but even in my dreams there are obstacles. In one dream I saw her, but my brother held me back. It's mom, I told him. She's not real, she's dead, remember? Don't touch her, that's not her. He grabbed my hand, led me up a stairway that went nowhere. We were running away from something, an incoming fire perhaps. This house is always on the brink of burning down. I don't remember what time it was when I heard my phone ring. It was late, perhaps around three or four in the morning. I didn't recognize the number and so I didn't answer. The next time my phone rang, I picked it up right away. A man's voice asked for Janice. This is she, I responded. Okay, let me put you on with your brother. Janice, I think you have to come home right now. What? What happened? It's Oma. She passed away. What? What happened? She just collapsed. We're at the hospital right now. The doctors say her brain is dead. What? She's hooked up to a respirator. We're waiting for you. Okay. Okay, I'm coming. I'm leaving right now. Okay, I won't have reception. I can't leave my phone on in the emergency room. Ask for us at the front desk. She's at San Joaquin General Hospital. Okay, I'm leaving. Okay. It was late. My brother was asleep already and my father was in the other room finishing up paperwork. My mother was trying to fall asleep but couldn't. She complained to my father about her head. My head, it hurts, she exclaimed. My father was only a little worried as this wasn't uncommon. She had had migraines, headaches, and dizziness on and off for the last few months due to her high blood pressure. He told her to try and sleep, but she couldn't. Her head hurt too much. My head, it feels like it's about to explode. My father was now concerned, so he woke up my brother. He got up, went to the phone. My mother was screaming in pain. He dialed 911. My father was helping her put on her pants, and suddenly, amidst her screams, she collapsed. That's when it happened, my brother told me. I remember. I just remember that moment over and over again. He had trouble sleeping the first few nights because he couldn't stop remembering. Sometimes we become frozen in anticipation, wondering what the truth behind the moment is, a life haunted by the memories littered in the spaces we force ourselves into. Dean Koontz writes, we are haunted, and regardless of the architecture with which we surround ourselves, our ghosts stay with us until we ourselves are ghosts. But we haunt ourselves. It comes from within. Shame and the guilt become the inutterable words whispered by the wind in passing but unable to pass through our own lips. The impressions left on us become horrific. A face, a stare, closed eyes, and the inert presence of a mother who suddenly is a rare sight, dusty and far. Multiple perspectives on the life fall back and a new sequence of events is created. 
one constituted by the good times, the good times. There were so many moments pristine and peaceful, but why when she was alive did I never notice? And why when she was alive did I only remember the times we fought, wanted to kill each other, stared at each other with so much hatred, mother and daughter locked in deathmatch after deathmatch? When the paramedics arrived, they lied and told my brother and father that she would be all right when she got to the hospital. They believed this, and when they arrived at the hospital, were not expecting the news. She's not going to make it. What? She had an aneurysm. I'm so sorry. There's a 0% chance of recovery. What? She's dead. There's nothing we can do. My brother and father didn't sleep that night. When I arrived at the hospital, my brother met me in front of the emergency room desk. He brought me to her. She was lying down, hooked up to a respirator. She didn't look relaxed at all, and though I know she probably couldn't feel anything, she looked miserable, uncomfortable. She's not breathing on her own. I hugged my dad. It was the first time I had hugged him in years. And then I stood by her bed, awkwardly. You can touch her, you know. I put my hand on her arm. Feel in her hand, it's still a little warm. I put my hand on her fist. It was warm inside, but I couldn't pry the fingers open more than a couple centimeters. It is when words fail that ghosts appear. It is when memory has something to say that the ghosts are visible. It's when you touch an object, one that had no significance whatsoever until its owner died, that you feel you ought to feel something more. It says if you feel like you could gather up some of that person's essence through the objects that they touched, the places they inhabited. It's as if you're looking for the ghosts, wanting them to show themselves, because at least then you wouldn't be alone. It's as if I can't possibly imagine the future anymore, even though she never pictured prominently in my future anyways, but suddenly she does, her absence does, and a pile of subjective dispositions to the past. The past becomes changed more and more by the future of her absence. It becomes unbearable, and I feel more and more alone. We are not a communicative family. My brother and I don't talk about our pain. We dwell and analyze the pain of our father, what we should do, how we should proceed, but never about our own pain. But there are those points when it becomes so heavy. When I'm stuck in traffic or on long drives or waiting, I call my mother. When I was driving back from Pomona one night, I had the urge to call her, but realized right away I couldn't. I could never call her again. It was such an inconsequential realization that I couldn't call her. Not momentous, but heavy. I fought my tears all the way home. I remember when she finally flatlined. In that moment, I felt a tinge of relief, but also a tinge of, oh shit, she's really dead. Even though she had been brain dead for all of those hours, it hadn't really felt like she was gone yet, like she had just been sleeping there in bed, that she might still wake up. I remember when we all heard the beep and when the nurse officially pronounced her dead and jotted down the time of death that my dad had what is called a psychogenetic non-epileptic seizure, collapsed on the ground, started kicking and smashing his head on the floor. My brother got down on his knees and held my father's head while I grabbed his arms, tried to caress him and calm him down. It took several nurses to keep him pinned, and the entire time he was flailing all of his limbs, he kept screaming in Korean, No, take me instead. You fuckers, you fucking bastards, take me instead. Bring her back and take me instead. Fucking bastards, you're taking the wrong one. Take me, take me. It's my fault, so take me. My aunt and I were sent down with my dad on a stretcher to the emergency room. When he snapped out of whatever state he had been in, he asked me what I was doing here. Why am I in the hospital? Did something happen? Why aren't you in L.A.? 
I didn't want to say the word, so just asked him, you don't remember? He stared blankly. The nurse came and went, and then he snapped out of whatever other state he had just been in. I remember now, he said. He was weeping softly. I remember. He wanted to go back upstairs, say goodbye. I didn't argue, though my aunt tried to. My dad was stubborn, and there wasn't really any use. What I remember is that when we arrived, one of my mother's friends handed me a bag. Your mother's purse, she said. I glanced down and recognized it. As everyone slowly shuffled out through the double doors, I lingered behind. I had been sent down to the emergency room so quickly, I hadn't had a chance to really say goodbye. I wanted to see her face again. I stood by the bed for a moment, whispered goodbye, and maybe some other things that I don't remember right now. But I remember that face. Her face had already turned a light shade of yellow, darkness starting to permeate around her eyes. I had trouble sleeping the first few nights because I couldn't get that face out of my mind. I notice that when I don't think about her, I feel better. Life is easier. I feel like I can think about the future. But once I get too comfortable, too settled back into life that was a different life before this one, I start to feel guilty, as if perhaps I ought to feel more obligated to cart the sadness around with me everywhere, to carry it on my shoulders, spell out the words in distinct murmurs, but I don't. And then when I do tell people, they always seem so surprised, and I can never quite figure out why. Do I not look sad enough? Should I be more obviously recovering from a mother's this? And then, even worse, they'll say something like, I'm so sorry about your loss. How does one respond to such a phrase like that? I remember how scorched my face can... I wonder how scorched my face can really get before prayer loses its steam and the moon its air. I stare into the sun too long, the sunspots like spirits invade my consciousness and allow me to believe in another realm that can never truly exist for me outside the memories and dreams of ulterior motives, familiar stirrings, a pillow over my face. Ghosts do not become angels. That is what the whispers tell me. In the margins of understanding, I imagine a realm with a beginning and end, with the slowness of a turning head and the speed of a blinking eye. It seems that ghosts reveal themselves as an eye opens, or as a child fills in the colors of a predetermined outline. The real trouble with angels is that they are not psychic. Neither is God. Just because he lives inside your brain doesn't mean he can read its secrets. There's a sense of haunting that materializes all the more I try to write this. As if entering the spaces of words, of images I can't recall so vividly, as if I fade away in the backgrounds of memories that show themselves only out of the corner of my eye. It's difficult to articulate an encounter with such an event. I mean the reaching out to touch the dust of dust gone, dust in the wind, dust, everything returns to dust. A strange ritual I put myself through, this thing called writing, this thing called mourning, this thing called remembering. I remember my mother, but not clearly. I look to a single Polaroid I have of my family, one of the few photos of our family all together, my father, always a documentarian of the other three. The Polaroid is many years old. I look maybe six or seven. My mother's face looks young, so very different from the face I remember seeing in the hospital when I said goodbye to a corpse, a corpse that once contained the soul of my mother. But what is a soul without a body? What does it mean for a body to still have warmth but be broken, to be dead but recognizable as somebody once alive? 
What does it mean to look at my mother in a photograph? This is what she looked like, always in past tense. What does she look like now? Scattered ashes in the water, ashes in an urn above my father's bed, a ghost. Sometimes she is a space, the site where her memory is embodied, a sense of her persisting identity, the space around my dog, the furniture in her house. Is this why my father rearranges the furniture every few weeks? Is this why he avoids being home alone for long instances? Why he clings to shadows, strange rituals to overcome the repositories of the, fa- of the past while preserving others, anchors of an aura that persists all the more that their own bodies move forward in time? I feel sometimes that time is moving in the wrong direction. Bodies should move together. How does the past persist in the present and swallow the future? I often think of deaths now, but never my own. I tell others that I am afraid I will die the way my mother died, but in reality, I'm no longer afraid of dying at all. What does my father think of before he closes his eyes at night? What does my brother see when he lies in bed trying to sleep? When will I be able to remember my mother clearly? Even in my dreams, she is blurry, a shadow, only a feeling that lets me know it is her. All the memories are fading away, the familiar transforming into the strange. I am haunted by everything that is disappearing, haunted by what is in front of me, each and every object the link to an absence, to a presence, to a space inside my head. Between the letters, there are gaps. The haunting is happening to me inside the gaps. I need the ghosts to stay because without them I may no longer be able to remember, to feel the presence of a certain consciousness, the warmth of a hug that I once tried to shug off, embarrassed and now would give up dreaming to feel again. Give me a kiss before you go. Do I have to? Why do we hesitate so much to show affection? In real life and flesh, why do we make things so difficult? I feel as if it's all diverging. My mind is breaking down. My memory is going, not only of her, but all of my memories are fading. All of my memories are broken. I am broken. This is way too fucking melodramatic. I'm just stalling now, trying to hold on to the integrity of her face. God, what did she look like? It happened to me. This is how mourning is an egocentric process. Her death happened to me. My memory loss moves through my body like a ghost. The memories that reappear swing my limbs in alternating motions. I am a rearranged body, and again, I am stalling. I am stalling. I never got to properly say goodbye to my mother. All I have left is the insistence of her ghost so that I can have the comfort of her knowing how I feel now. It's important that she knows how I feel now. Because I can't say goodbye. It happened to me. I can't properly end anything that begins with a death. That isn't the point. Throughout all this, I realize the limits of my own knowledge. I mean, I don't know where she is now. Nowhere, everywhere, here, there, gone. I don't know if she could hear me. I don't know if she can hear me now. I don't know what her face looks like without looking at a photograph. But I do know that there is night and day. I know that nights are no more difficult than days. The absence or presence of light has no effect on memory. I know that at night I can see the stars, though most nights the dust shields the luminous balls and all I can really make out are the lights from the surrounding city. I don't know what love is and may never be able to explain the silliness of such a word, a four-letter word meant to encompass way too much. But I do know that whatever happens between a mother and daughter in life cannot stop the tears from coming at inconvenient moments in the afterlife. I don't know what the afterlife is like. I don't know what the afterlife is like for others, but for me, it is the period after a life, after the life of that woman who brought me into this world. I don't know if she was happy for most of her life, 
But I do know that when she saw my dog, Benny, she would smile. I don't know what death really means with all my stupid and complicated and over-intellectual metaphysical ideas, but I do know that things have changed. And I don't know for certain if ghosts exist, but this, all this that I'm living in now, all the words I put together for the sake of some kind of closure, is a site for conjuration, a site of permanent conjuration, because I will be conjuring ghosts for the rest of my life. Thank you. If anyone has any questions, I guess. Um, in the last poem, or I guess probably, uh, you said that the text is a site of conjuration, um, and a continual site of conjuration. I mean, do you feel like you know that's a statement of when you're writing it, or also just a statement of every time it's revisited? Um, I think I think both. Um, like the text, I think is a site of conjuration for anyone who reads it. But also, I feel like my writing actually completely changed after that. So everything I've ever written since then is sort of a site for conjuration. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, writing? Uh, yeah, it was, so when I initially wrote it, it was much more compulsive. Um, it was much more therapeutic. So it wasn't, um, you know, intended to be a book. Um, so I didn't actually really revisit it until just recently. Um, and I told uh, Rebecca, my publisher, that um, I wasn't going to be able to edit it. So um, unless, you know, like I would take feedback and I would, I would, you know, proofread it, but there wasn't really any way that I could revisit myself five years ago in that period. Um, so that was sort of, um, yeah, how I dealt with that. Oh, okay. so you just said um, that your writing's changed. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, you asked me the hardest question. Um, I don't think, um, like, I can't exactly articulate how it's changed, um, but I know at least my process has changed a lot. So, for one, um, I've written almost no fiction, actually, since then. Um, it's been hard for me to create stories, I think. Um, so, so since then, actually, I've been writing mostly, like, essays and nonfiction and, and weird lyrical, poetic things um, and things from prompts. Um, and my writing now also comes a lot more... Um, fluidly, I guess, for like lack of a better word. I think before I spent a lot more time crafting things and doing research and really trying to construct narratives. Um, and I haven't really thought about writing in that way for a long time. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to awkwardly step off stage now. <laughs>